I Lived with a Killer is part of the Real Crime Collection in the Reels Files on Podcast One, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Be sure to subscribe to get new episodes each Thursday. Then, go to Reels.com to find chilling programs like this when you watch TV. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com for the real crime series and specials you'll find only on Reels Channel. Family man William Jennings Choice is descending into darkness. He is cruising the streets looking for women out alone. While his wife and daughter face his fury at home. It looked like he was going to just like kill my mom. I was worried about my daughter. They have no idea of the true depths of his depravity. Having two prostitutes found about a month apart, both gunshot wounds to the head. The detectives felt that it could be the same person. When the truth finally comes out, his family is horrified. It felt like my whole life had been alive. William Jennings Choice, a polite man from a successful upper middle class family, appears to be the ideal husband and father. But the seemingly normal exterior masks a sexual deviance bubbling just below the surface that ultimately sends him spiraling out of control. Alice could never predict that the charming man she marries would become a serial killer. Alice Wofford, ex-wife. His family were what people would call a good family. They owned their own home. They had more than one car in the garage. They went to church every Sunday. Alice meets William as a teenager when she moves on to the Oakland, California street where he lives. Her entire family takes a shine to him. I met William in 1970. He became my brother's best friend. and My mom saw William as like one of her sons, so she treated him very kindly and uh, really had this respect for him that she didn't seem to have with other guys that would come to the house. He was kind of like the standout guy in her eyes that uh, was kind and, and decent. In 1976, after dating for four years, Alice and William welcomed daughter Crystal. They're married two years later. Crystal Choice, daughter. My earliest memory with my dad is when I'm about five years old and we're at the lake feeding the ducks and having a picnic and just relaxing. And then um, we go to lunch after that to our favorite hamburger spot. The Choice family leads a normal middle-class life until one night William comes home with a wild story. He came home one night and he looked kind of disheveled and kind of like really afraid. I said, what happened to you? And he said, I was robbed. And so he came with the idea that um, we needed a gun to protect the home. It was like normal for me to see the gun and to be like, oh, my dad, you know, he carries a gun because we live like in a bad neighborhood. So I just thought that's what dads did was to carry a gun to be safe. Now armed, William's behavior changes. He starts leaving the house in the evenings, taking the gun with him. Um, one time I was standing on the top of the stairs watching him actually like put the gun like in his pocket. And then he would just leave out with the gun. My question to him was, why do you need a gun? 
that question he never answered for me. It was a total deviation from his normal routine because he would normally come home from work. He would shower and uh, get ready for the next day. But then this all changed. William's unusual behavior becomes a regular occurrence. William began these disappearing acts. I would ask him where he was going. He would just simply say, uh, I'm going out. Soon, William begins to stay out all night. I don't think it was about getting away and getting some recreation and winding down and relaxing. I think it was something else that he was doing. Camille Kimball, investigative reporter. If your husband's going out at night without you, any wife is going to eventually suspect there's cheating going on. And that's exactly what Alice thought was going on with William. I went to look for him because I really wanted to know where does a man go in the middle of the night when he has a family at home? I would probably be about maybe seven. She would just say, get your coat. She didn't tell me we were going to look for my dad. A lot of times I didn't know that's what we were doing. I just thought we were in the car just riding around. Alice and Crystal never find William out on the street at night. But in October 1985, Alice's suspicion that William is cheating on her is confirmed. When you're committing a lot of acts against the law, eventually someone is going to catch you at it. And that happened to William. First thing they caught him at was soliciting a prostitute. And when the police checked him out, they found an unregistered gun. William is taken down to the police station, arrested and booked, and he's got to call somebody. He called Alice. Alice arrives at the police station in the middle of the night. They said, do you want to know what your husband is here for? And the way they said it, it was like it's going to be a joke. And I was not in the mood for jokes. And so I said, no. I just remember being, like, really scared that, you know, what did he do to get in jail? Like, how does your dad end up in jail? We went home, and I remember they were arguing. I said, well, where's the car? And he said, it's on San Pablo. San Pablo, at the time, was where prostitutes frequented. I asked him, why is your car on San Pablo at this time of the morning? He said he had went to get a hamburger. William denied that he was on San Pablo to pick up prostitutes, but I believed it. And so our relationship, such as it was, took on a whole different dynamic. I felt like it wasn't me that he was kissing or that me that he was touching. And so I developed this phobia of his touch. It just repulsed me. And so it came to a point where Okay, I'm going to compromise with this guy. I'm going to do all the things that a wife does to take care of her home. And I did. I, I got groceries. I cooked good meals. Uh, always had food on the table. The clothes were clean. And that was my way of compensating for my inability to be intimate with him. While William and Alice learned to coexist... William's relationship with his daughter deteriorates. What I didn't know 
early on is that when he would pick her up from school, he would berate her, well, how was your day today? And if she couldn't recite line by line, verse for verse, what she learned, he would get enraged. I think is something in his own childhood that made him respond with anger. William was raised with a sturdy hand that if you did the wrong thing, then he was slapped or beat or belittled or ridiculed, put down basically. Soon, William's treatment of Crystal becomes violent. My mom was at work, and so my dad was taking care of me and my cousin, and he told us to get up and go wash our face, brush our teeth. And I accidentally used her face towel. And so when I went to tell my dad, I was like, oh, I accidentally used her towel. I need to get another towel. He got really angry with me and started yelling and, you know, like shaking me and telling me, you know, why would you take her face towel? That's nasty. You know, you're stupid. Then the next thing I know, he just slapped me really hard down to the ground. I remember like my face being real hot and I'm on the floor and I remember my mouth was cut and you know I was bleeding and he was just standing over me yelling about how stupid I was. I felt like he didn't love me and I just remember feeling like I'm really dealing with a person who is crazy and things were gonna get worse. Then, while Alice is away on business, Crystal sees something alarming. I got a page from Crystal. She was calling from our house, and it said 911. And uh, when I called, she picked up the phone. She's like, Mommy, something's really weird going on with Daddy. She said, Daddy's coming up and down the stairs, and he has a mask on. And I said, what kind of mask? She said, a mask with two eyes, and then it's a little place for the mouth. It's only the beginning of William's reign of terror. Well, it turns out that that offering that I had to be the quintessential wife was good for him because he really didn't want to be intimate with me. The kind of intimacy he wanted could only be taken from somebody that was not a willing partner. If you like what you're hearing, check out the Real Crime TV series on Reels Channel. You'll find true stories of capital offenders brought to justice, like Chris Watts, the Colorado killer dad, the Turpins, whose children grew up in a real-life house of horrors, and a new report on the disappearance of Natalie Holloway. Reels is your go-to for updates on unsolved murders and insights on the minds of serial killers. Find Reels on your TV at Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com. Then, check the top of the screen to find Reels in your area. William Choice, a seemingly quiet and helpful family man, has been prowling the streets at night with a gun. Now, with his wife Alice away on business, William's daughter Crystal witnesses something alarming. I remember him saying that he was going out. The next thing I know, I see my dad with a ski mask on. When he comes back, he goes into his room and he shuts the door. Concerned, Crystal reaches out to her mother. 
told her to put her dad on the phone, and she did. And I asked him, what's going on? Why are you wearing a ski mask? And he said, oh, I was cleaning up the backyard and I didn't want the dust to get in my face. So I said, well, make sure Crystal gets some rest and I'm going to call you guys back later. Shortly after, chaos erupts in the neighborhood. We hear the ambulance and the police coming. And a neighbor came to the door and said, you know, the neighbor next door, somebody raped her. A woman has jumped from her window, tied to a chair, while trying to escape an unknown assailant. I remember I was hearing um, them describe the person having a ski mask. And I remember running upstairs to tell my dad he was just laying there, and it was just kind of weird that, like, he didn't care about, you know, all this chaos going on outside. When Alice calls back, she learns of the vicious attack on the neighbor. I remember my mom panicking and, like, just going crazy because I'm literally there right next door to our house. And so I told her the police are asking daddy questions. When Alice confronts William, she gets conflicting stories. He said the police didn't ask him anything. I said, well, did they come to the door? And he said, well, no, they just came and asked if I knew anything. And I said I didn't. Uh, but first he tried to say they didn't come at all. I wanted to talk to him more about it, but he was adamant it was nothing to talk about. And I didn't want to press Crystal because I didn't want to further traumatize her. Alice pushes the incident from her mind. I thought that he knew more than he did, but I don't think I went as far as to say he did it in my mind. That's the denial, again, the thing that puts you in this place where you feel safe, that you don't have to confront something horrible. I think that's what I did. After the attack on their neighbor, William's behavior at home deteriorates. He started not bathing. He would go in the room and shut the door and watch porn movies like that was his preoccupation. William's mistreatment of Crystal becomes more frequent. He was belittling her and, you know, well, why didn't you wear those socks today? Or uh, why is your hair uh, messed up when you came home from school? Never did you have a pleasant day. Did you have a nice day? He would stand over me, yell at me, scream at me. He would, you know, slap me. It becomes normal. I thought everybody was getting beat up by their dads. I didn't know anything different. As their family falls apart, William spends more and more time away from home. In April 1988, his behavior escalates again. Over the long Easter weekend of 1988, William was nowhere to be found. I was worried about whether something had happened to him, and I called his mom and dad. Do, do you guys know where William is? And they say, no, I, we don't know where he is. Out cruising the streets in a seedy part of Oakland, William picks up a woman named Victoria Bell. After driving to a secluded area, William tells Victoria to climb in the back of the van. There, he pulls out a gun. He binds her hands and feet together. Don't move. 
sometimes subjects that commit rapes um, aren't satisfied with the rape. And in William Choice's case, he was not getting a, enough of a thrill from just the rape, so he escalated to murder. After killing Victoria Bell, William returns home to his family. When William came home, he looked like a different person. He was disheveled. He looked like he hadn't had a bath in a couple days. And um, I asked him, you know, where had he been? And he said, well, I left my car at the parking lot two blocks away, and I went to Reno on the bus. After that weekend that he was gone, he went into this total withdrawal period where he just ate when he had to, and then he would go to his room. His behavior was downhill all the way from then. When the police find Victoria Bell's body on the outskirts of town, there's little to go on. Victoria had not just been tossed there out of a back of a car. She'd been posed. In fact, it was a sexually suggestive pose. Her blouse was pulled up, her skirt was pulled down, and her hands and her ankles were bound. Police ordered a rape kit done on the body, and they did collect semen, but DNA was a science very early in its infancy at that time, so they really had no way of tracing that sample to any individual perpetrator. Even though William Choice has been arrested in the past for soliciting a prostitute, he flies under detectives' radar. In the late 80s, the suspect wasn't required to do oral swabs upon arrest and booking into jail, so the reason crimes weren't solved by DNA was, number one, we didn't have enough of it, or number two, the suspect wasn't in the databank. Just like in the film Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, the presence of the killer's DNA at the scene of the murder is no help if there's nothing to compare it to. Sometimes there is nothing else left to investigate, and you just need to put it down until something else comes up. Somebody comes forward and says something. Um, you get a DNA hit or just some other circumstance that allows you to reopen it and start investigating again. In the aftermath of the murder, William's treatment of his daughter reaches new heights of cruelty. I had a doll that um, I really loved. And one day he took the doll while I was asleep and hung her by a belt. He was laughing at me, crying and screaming and hollering and telling me that she was dead and, aha, I killed your, your doll. My mom came running in and got the doll and just was, like, hitting him and just saying, what is wrong with you? Like, why, why would you do that? Like, why would you do that to your daughter? He was just, like, finding so much pleasure in the fact that I was traumatized because he took something I loved and act like he killed it. William's anger around the house increases, and eventually he snaps. He asked me to calm down and fix him something to eat, and I said, I'm not fixing you anything to eat. And I've seen the movie Jekyll and Hyde, one person switching up to become a totally different human being. And then he went into 
his Jekyll and Hyde moment. He was ranting and screaming. I'm the man! You do what I say! Me and he drugged me all over the house. Come here! You do what I say! This is my house. You do what I say, do, and he just screamed it over and over and over. I remember I ran back in my room, and then he came in, looked like he was gonna just like kill my mom. William Choice has gone over the edge, and his family is trapped. William Choice has devolved from an ordinary family man into a vicious killer. His wife Alice and daughter Crystal have no idea he's committed murder. But when he flies off the handle one night, they're afraid for their own lives. He grabbed me and he drugged me all over the house. I remember I ran back in my room, and then he came in, looked like he was gonna just like kill my mom. Facing a madman, Alice does what she needs to, to survive. I knew better than the fight back. I knew that I needed to be cool and just go with the flow because the monster that was inside of him would kill me if I tried to fight back. That same night, we discovered he was sitting in the bedroom with the gun under a towel. And my impression then, and more so now, is that he was either going to kill us or he was going to kill himself. Terrified, Alice and Crystal flee the house. He was still upstairs. And I just remember it felt like forever getting down those stairs. If we could just get out the front door, then we'll be okay. Alice and Crystal managed to escape William's rage. I just remember feeling like, okay, we're kind of free. I was happy. I don't have to deal with him anymore. I was kind of excited because I thought it was going to begin a new chapter in my life, um, that I could just focus on my daughter and we could live in peace. Alice divorces her husband, and she and her daughter attempt to move on with their lives. I thought it was important for my daughter and for myself to get counseling because I think we needed to figure out how we're going to come out of this relationship, this family, whole. But Crystal can't find the closure she hopes for. When William has a son with his new girlfriend, 16-year-old Crystal decides to move back in with him and give her father another chance. You know, it's like a yearning to be a daddy's girl, to be loved by this man who brought you into the world, who you feel like should love you. And then he was having a baby with someone else. And so I thought, well, you know, if he's going to love that baby, then maybe this would be a good time for me to jump in and he could start loving me too. When Crystal arrives, she finally enjoys the family life she's always wanted. He was cooking dinner, he was cleaning, taking me school shopping for, you know, supplies, and just trying to be attentive and, you know, like, supportive and seem like it was going to be good. 
but Crystal's hopes are soon dashed. I don't know if that was just, you know, him trying to be something he was not. He just couldn't keep it up. And it got abusive again, like within maybe a couple of weeks. I think I stayed longer because I had a brother and I was more so trying to take care of him and look out for him. And so I just was like struggling though, like every day was a struggle. Ultimately, Crystal decides to move back in with her mother. I made up my mind like I'm not doing this. I can't no more. I just felt like he was just poison. As William's violence continues, his attacks become more brazen. In December of 1994, a young woman had an argument with her husband. She got angry, she stormed out of the house, and she thought she'd cool off by walking over to her mother's about half an hour's walk away from her home. All she can remember is being pulled by the hair into a vehicle, then driven to a house where William Choice raped her with a gun to her head. He said he was going to kill her. But eventually he let her go and dropped her back on her own neighborhood. This rape and abduction was reported to the police. And in fact, they were able to find the house and it was William Choice's house. They confronted him with her story, but William Choice told police that, oh, she came to his house of her own volition and they had consensual sex. And the prosecutor felt that there just wasn't enough extra evidence to take that case to trial. William escapes justice again, but just barely. He moves his new family to a new jurisdiction, where he's free to resume his activities with a clean slate. It's only a matter of time before this killer kills again. California family man William Choice terrorizes his daughter Crystal and attacks his wife Alice. The women cut ties with him in an attempt to move on with their lives. We needed to figure out how we're going to come out of this relationship, this family whole. Narrowly escaping prosecution for rape, Choice moves to a new jurisdiction where he's free to resume his violent activities. In 1997, William has moved to Stockton by now. But his behavior has not changed. He is still cruising the streets looking for women out alone. He met a woman named Gwen Lee. Gwendolyn Lee had worked as a prostitute in downtown Stockton. She was working solo. She didn't have a girl watching out for her, a pimp watching out for her. And it's a dangerous profession. theory was she got picked up by a John. Uh, she was bound. Then she was uh, raped. Gwendolyn Lee was murdered and left. Gwenly's body was found in a rural area west of the city of Stockton, and her body was placed in a pose that was intended to humiliate her with her backside in the air, her hands and knees on the ground, and her hands and ankles were bound. 
San Joaquin County Sheriff's Department got a call of a body out on McDonald Island Road, a dead female who appeared had a single gunshot wound to the head. Detectives respond to the scene. We know we probably had a John that had picked up a prostitute in downtown Stockton. A rape kit was done, both vaginal and oral swabs. Uh, there were fingernail clippings taken uh, by the pathologist and put into the rape kit. Uh, hair was pulled and put into a sealed box and placed into the evidence room. Despite the evidence collected, detectives find little that can lead them to the killer. DNA science had come a long way since 1988, and there were, in fact, databases of criminals and their DNA. However, if you had never been caught for anything and your DNA had never been put in the system, any crimes you are committing right now would never be identified through DNA. One month later, another body is found. Luanda Beck was found nude, uh, shot in the head. Like the previous victim, her hands and feet are bound. We knew that Luanda Beck was a prostitute that worked out of South Stockton. Again, nobody was watching her back. Uh, nobody saw her get into any vehicle. Her rape kit was sent to the Department of Justice for analysis. And just like Gwendolyn Lee, if there's no person in the data bank that matches the DNA that was collected, we have nowhere to go. But the similarities between the Gwen Lee and Luanda Beck murders don't go unnoticed. Having two prostitutes found about a month apart, both gunshot wounds to the head, both bound. The detectives felt that it could be the same person. We went and talked to a lot of the girls that are working the streets and told them, this is happening, you need to watch each other's backs. If something is strange, please let us know. But a lot of them are afraid to talk to police because they either have warrants or we know what they're doing and they're afraid they're gonna get arrested. With no solid leads, the trail once again goes cold. Potentially, there could have been victims all over the state of California. None have been tied together because law enforcement doesn't always talk to each other. There could have been a number of rape victims, but he just didn't kill them. Uh, so we really didn't know, but you know, the potential was, was there that there were other people. For the next four years, William is free to prowl the streets until his luck finally runs out. In 2001, another rape victim comes forward. A woman, a prostitute, comes to police and tells them she's been raped. And while she's talking to the cop, a man walks by and she says, that's him, and it was William Choice. Police later found another woman, uh, also a prostitute, who made the same accusation that she'd been raped by William Choice. Choice is finally arrested and charged with two counts of rape. William struck a plea bargain with prosecutors for the rape of the two prostitutes, and he was sentenced to 11 years in prison. Now a mother herself, Crystal makes plans to move across the country with her young family. Before she goes, she reaches out to her father one last time. I decide to call his girlfriend to say, like, you know, where's my dad? And maybe I can see you guys and say bye, you know, who knows? So that's when she told me, she was like, you didn't know? And I'm like, no, what? And she was like, your dad is in jail for rape. I couldn't believe it. I, I seriously thought she was just joking. Crystal calls her mother to tell her the news. 
I was in shock. I couldn't believe it, and I'm like, this is a joke. William raped somebody? I just thought that this is not right. This has got to be something that's wrong. I was worried about my daughter. I'm divorced from him. That's always going to be her dad. I would not have to live with this the way she had to live with your dad's a rapist. Your dad's done something horrible. I was like, I'm going to go visit him because I just, I had to see this for myself. Alice and Crystal visit William at the Alameda County Jail, where he awaits a transfer to state prison. He's behind the glass, and I sit down, I pick up the phone, and I cannot believe it's him. Like, I'm so shocked. It's like I was in a nightmare, and he's just like, hey, like normal, like, hey. He even called me my nickname, he used to call me, and I couldn't believe it. I just was like, what? what's going on, you know, stuttering and... Now I'm shaking, but he just kept shaking his head. He didn't never really address it. I thought maybe he would say something, but he didn't say anything. He didn't look like anybody I knew. He looked so much older. He looked like he didn't have a care in the world. Like, oh, by the way, I'm in jail for raping somebody. And so he said, hey, honey boo. Like he had just seen me yesterday. I wanted William so much to tell me how did he end up in jail? What happened in your life that could turn you into someone that could violate women in the most vile way? I want him to explain himself. And that was something that William was never good at, explaining his feelings, his emotions, his actions. Instead, William expresses regret about his relationship with Crystal. He said, could you apologize for me? I really, really messed up with Crystal. And uh, I kind of like nodded in agreement. I knew he messed up. He really messed up. As they leave the jail, Alice and Crystal are in shock. I was so hurt for him that he was in jail. I was hurt. I was worried about him and still kind of in denial that this happened. But to hear him really say he was sorry and that he knew he had messed up with me, I think that's why I broke down when I left the jail. It's because I really did feel like he loved me. When I realized that I had been married to somebody that had plea bargained to rape, I felt like my whole life with William had been a lie, that either I was so oblivious as to what was going on with him and with inside of our relationship, or he was so stealthy, so cunning, so conniving, that he could hide his propensity to commit such evil acts. As Choice serves time in prison for rape, the police in Stockton take another look at the murders of Gwen Lee and Lawanda Beck. In the early 2000s, it became obvious that San Joaquin County Sheriff's Department needed uh, somebody to look at uh, our old cases that were just sitting on the shelf. And I proposed the idea to the sheriff that we start a cold case unit. And I brought in a detective, very meticulous about what he does, doesn't leave any stone unturned. Detectives are more determined than ever to bring their killer to justice. 
once a normal middle-class family man, William Choice has become a killer, preying on women in his Stockton, California neighborhood. His daughter Crystal and ex-wife Alice are shocked when they visit him in prison, where he's serving an 11-year sentence for rape. I couldn't believe he was so stealthy, so cunning, so conniving that he could hide his propensity to commit such evil acts. But William's murders go unsolved until the San Joaquin Sheriff's Department sets up a cold case unit. Not solving any case is frustrating, but especially homicides because they are the they're the worst. As an investigator, if you don't want to solve all of your homicide cases, you don't belong in the in, in the division. In the early 2000s, detectives begin to review evidence from unsolved murders. In a cold case, anything evidentiary is is where you're going to um, start. Things like rape kits, things like ballistics, were sent to the Department of Justice for analysis. Advances in technology mean DNA is now commonly used to solve murders, and databases are maintained across the country. In a lot of these cases, DNA is the silent witness, and uh, we wouldn't solve them if it wouldn't be for the uh, suspect to get arrested and, and swabbed and have his DNA put into the system. Choices DNA was in the databank because he had committed uh, two violent rapes and was arrested, swabbed and was doing 11 years uh, in prison. The tactic is a success. In February of 2004, the detective in the cold case unit got a call from California Department of Justice. The analyst told him that there was a match between William Choice and LaWanda Beck. Investigators then linked the LaWanda Beck murder to Gwen Lee's. The bullets from Gwendolyn Lee and LaWanda Beck were matched to be from the same weapon. So having the same gun probably means you have William Choice pulling the trigger and killing both of the girls. A match is also made to Choice's first victim. Our cold case investigator learned that a 1988 case, Victoria Bell, was also associated by DNA with William Choice. Now linked to three murders, a grand jury indicts Choice in 2005. He's charged with kidnapping, raping, and fatally shooting two prostitutes from Stockton and a third from Oakland. Authorities reach out to William's family. I got a note from the coroner's office that they needed to talk to me. He was already in jail for rape. I thought maybe something's happened to him. Maybe somebody killed him. Maybe he died. They said, okay, well, we need to tell you that he's been charged with three murders. I was almost speechless that thought that somebody I was married to was a murderer. How do you get to the point where you feel like it's your right to take someone's life? I was afraid of how I was going to tell Crystal. I was, I was devastated for her. When she told me, I just could not believe it. I just was like, this is, this cannot be true because I never would have thought my dad would have been a murderer, was capable of killing anybody. I immediately thought back to that night that my, me and my mom left. And I really knew then that he could have killed me and my mom if he was capable of murdering other women. You know, we lucky we even made it out of there. 
He was a serial killer that apparently derived some kind of pleasure out of taking the lives of innocent people. Learning the truth about her ex-husband overwhelms Alice. I made a horrible, life-altering decision to be with this man. And my fear was that I would never trust another man, that I would never know who was real and who wasn't. And then I blamed myself a lot for uh, the pain that I knew my daughter would suffer for years to come. William's trial begins on July 17, 2008. He's prosecuted for the murders of Victoria Bell, Gwen Lee, and Luanda Beck, as well as the 1994 rape for which he had previously escaped charges. Seeking closure, Alice attends the trial's closing arguments. I thought that it would give me some idea about the magnitude of his madness, the extent of his criminal behavior of the things that he did behind my back. I wanted to know how that evil manifested. I needed to come up close and personal with that because even if I didn't see it, the end result was always going to be a part of my life. And for me to be at the closing arguments helped me cement in my mind that he was a rapist and that he was a murderer and that I wouldn't have to live wondering if he had been wrongly convicted. The jury deliberated less than two days. He was found guilty on all counts, and then he was sentenced to death. It is the judgment and sentence of this court that for the crime of murder in the first degree, Mr. Toys shall be put to death within the walls of the California State Prison at San Quentin. I gasped, but I was not shocked because I knew he did those horrible things that he deserved the death penalty. After the trial, Crystal struggles to come to terms with her father's conviction. I want to know why. Like, was it something that happened to him that nobody knows about? You know, I won't get those answers from anybody else, but I won't get them from him either because he won't talk to anybody. I'm not in denial. I know that he is a murderer. I know that he killed people. But I kind of separate the murderer from my dad. When I remember him, I remember him as a dad. Not a good dad, but still my dad. William Choice's legacy of pain lives on. Being part of a family that included a serial rapist and a serial murderer, it never goes away. He comes up in dreams, and it's like, oh, they let him out of prison, and he's back at home, and I'm grappling with the fact that, no, aren't you, aren't you on death row? Why are you here in my dream? I just have nightmares of my dad getting electrocuted on death row. I have nightmares of my dad, like, being free and back out killing people. I have nightmares of, you know, growing up when he was abusive and seeing his face and, you know, going back into feeling scared again, where I literally think I'm back six and seven years old again with him and I cannot get out of that dream. That's going to be a part of me forever. Through the years, Alice and Crystal work to come through the pain and move forward. We lift each other up, and I'm so proud of my daughter, Crystal, because she's come a long way from the trauma of 
the things that her dad has done. She's living her life. She's raising her children. She's just like the best mom. And so I admire her. I made sure I got a man that was not abusive, that was not crazy, that was not mean, somebody who was going to love me, love my kids. And I made sure that that little girl knew she was loved every single day, all day. Now, even today, she gets tired of it. Both women are determined to help others in similar situations. Especially for an only child, and you're going through abuse, you do feel like no one can help you. And I just want people to see it and know that they should ask for help and that they don't have to be a monster like their parents and they can have, you know, a healthy life. We're just hoping that when we tell our story that someone will hear and they will learn and they will know that you can survive a trauma and you can go beyond survival and try to live the best life you can. You always have to keep moving towards being a conqueror or victorious. It's not just being a survivor. It's about telling other people what you went through, hoping that other people can learn something. I Lived With A Killer comes from the real crime fans at Reels Channel. To find more original programs like this when you watch TV, go to Reels.com. That's R-E-E-L-Z.com to find us on your system. You'll also find extras from the TV version of I Lived With A Killer, including tell-all interviews with family members and crime scene photos. You'll get only on Reels Channel.